This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs. Now let's get into today's show. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Detection at Scale. Today, I am here with Chris Witter, who is an engineering manager for detection response at Spotify. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm Christopher Witter. I go by Witter. Been doing cybersecurity, I'll say, long enough to see it change names a few times. Uh, when I started out, it was information assurance. Uh, then it was information security. Now it's cybersecurity. So that kind of dates it like a little bit. I started doing nation state investigations before it was commercially popular, right? I started off working for a defense contractor, was one of their founding members for their CSERT team. I've worked on a CSERT team at a global bank. I was one of the founding members of the Falcon Overwatch team at CrowdStrike. I was probably one of the most like biggest defining moments. I've worked for a couple of uh, MSSPs. And today I lead the detection response teams for both cloud and enterprise at Spotify. It's quite a resume. I'm really interested in all of it. Let's lean a little bit into CrowdStrike, just given you know their massive growth in the last, call it 10 years, right? Going mm-hmm. from a specific like endpoint agent to now becoming this like massive company. Tell us a little bit about Overwatch and what it is and, and what your experience was with it. Oh, yeah. So I started at CrowdStrike actually before we had a official product. It was just a services team and they were building it. So that was kind of a, an interesting ride. I was in like the first hundred or so people and wrote it out to about just 12 or 1500 people. But Overwatch was one of those things where, you know, we had such good observability of what was taking place and the technology was so new. It required a little bit of customer education. A lot of the things you would traditionally get would be from traditional forensics, right? You'd be like, oh, I want this. I want to know what commands they run. Oh, you got to do memory forensics for that. Oh, I want to know what was on disk. Oh, you got to do disk forensics for that. Like what files are written. Now, all of a sudden you were putting all this at your fingertips within seconds. It created an entirely different scenario where traditional incident response would take, you know, weeks, days, sometimes months, depending on how long and far it went. We could do those investigations and kind of wrap it up with a nice little bow in 15 minutes, you know, with a couple of queries and just following the trail of breadcrumbs. So we were there originally first for like end user education, you know, customers, Hey, look at all the cool stuff we could do. And that slowly and methodically built into, oh, well, this is actually an extreme value. People would pay for this because not only as a vendor, a lot of organizations be like, oh, I'll pay for somebody to do that. It's just easier, right? Like I'll buy the tool and there's this add-on and they'll buy that add-on because they don't have to worry about staffing it. That happens a lot in traditional enterprises where they'll roll out a tool and maybe not have the support they need or want to buy additional support. And so we kind of came in as that backstop to be looking for the most sensitive and important detections and information to get in in front of customers immediately. Uh, And it paid dividends time and time again, right? The product was phenomenal as they're like, you know, the industry leader now, but it grew over time. And honestly, we started out when Carbon Black was already around and it didn't take long for us to start eating their lunch. And I think Overwatch played a role in that because we had the visibility, we had the capabilities, the tool was phenomenal. 
We were great operators in the space and we were given actually the time and space to think outside of the box. You weren't given a lot of direction on, you have to do it this way. So we kind of, I'll say, didn't follow traditional SOC mentalities. We never even called ourselves a SOC because we were not triaging every single alert. We were not looking at every single thing that came in. We had very specific techniques, things that we were interested in, and we abstracted it at such a level. Uh, we can do it at scale very, very easily. So it was very interesting times. Uh, I would say it took four to five years for a competition to catch up there. And I would say even today, they probably haven't. Uh, Overwatch is still probably one of the number one uh, threat hunting teams. It's super interesting to me. So I assume that you were predominantly working with really early teams. Is that a correct assumption or really was it any size team, any type of company, any type of maturity? I would say they were all over the place. We had some, I won't say small businesses, but you know, smaller customers because they were looking at it from a, oh, I need an AV. We were a next gen AV provider. EDR was kind of the grab all in, in addition to it. Before they separated them out into two different SKUs on the product, it was like, well, we did both, right? And then as the product matured, they could, you know, split those out into two different products. So we would have customers being like, oh, I need to replace Semantic. I need to replace, you know, McAfee. McAfee had EPO, which was a pretty good tool, but it didn't do all the same things, right? And so they would be looking at the capabilities that we could bring to the table and be like, oh, well, that's a lot easier to run and use. And then they would just replace their traditional AVR. In some cases, they would run side by side. So environments would test it out because EDR was a relatively new thing. And so they might run both of them simultaneously and we would see things bypass the traditional AV and then be picked up by EDR uh, behavioral detections. And I want to hone in a little bit more of what you said earlier. You said that we never followed traditional stock mentalities and we had very specific techniques and abstractions. Can you talk a little bit about some of the mentality that you had and just go a little bit deeper there? Because I think a lot of people could learn from that. Oh yeah, definitely. So probably the easiest thing to abstract on when you're just talking about EDR is parent-child relationships, you know, the ancestry, but not just parent-child, but grandparent. So if you think about how, you know, and I'll just use Windows as an example, because it's the easiest one to beat up on um, and applies to most, but this abstracts to depending on the operating system in the same manner, right? The grandparent of a process. So command's going to be executed anytime they're going to run like a recon or a Wolbins command. Yo, yo, let me see net use. You know, what drives am I connected to? Those kinds of commands. But that command spawning net, that parent-child relationship is very, very common. You know, login scripts way back in the day did it all the time. So I need to look at the grandparent. So what spawned that command? Well, if it came from Explorer, it's on the desktop. You know, somebody double-clicked on it. That's not, you know, someone's on that system sitting in front of it physically. It's easy to just kind of ignore those. So looking at the parent-child relationship would be like, oh, this came out of an unknown executable. This came out of, you know, W3, WP, or, you know, your IIS process or Apache. You know, then you're like, well, that shouldn't be spawning a command prompt, which is then running recon commands, like, you know, doing a who or a who am I on Unix or Linux or, you know, on OSX, finding those kinds of processes and working your way back adversaries, when they compromise a box, no matter where it is in an environment, first thing is persistence, right? How am I going to, I got in, how do I stay here? So they're going to go for passwords or installing a backdoor. They're going to want to know what credentials they got to begin with. Oh, I got UID zero. Cool. Like I'm root now, but they're going to, in order to find that out, they may run W, who, who am I, you know, whatever it is for that applicable operating system after they've compromised the host. And just leveraging those kinds of techniques and looking for those simple things, you can start building a trail of breadcrumbs to start feeding 
other things that you may detect more microscopically. So in environments with developers, it can be a little noisy for some commands, but then you look at, you know, when you bring in the grandparent, it's a lot easier to be like, oh, that belongs here because it was Explorer, you know, but Java is pointing a command, command execution in any environment or shell would be like, hmm, well, that's weird. What is that shell doing? That will then lead you through the path of, okay, that's not normal. Statistical analysis applied to any of those will start eliminating just a metric ton of false positives because you'll be have a, a unique or distinct count and go, aha, this one happened five times. This one happened 5,000. 5,000, probably not important. Five? I can go look at those. I'm really curious, what similarities exist across customers? Like, are people fairly uniform or is everyone kind of a special snowflake? Having that much visibility in any environment or even a, an environment that has, you know, I'll say hundreds of thousands of users because they're out there and I've worked with them. You can come up with the world's best detection and think, ah, oh, this is perfect. This never happens. You know, really simple thing. I was working with a customer one time during my career and they were like, oh, we never have, you know, a productivity application, you know, Word document, whatever, that would spawn a command prompt and run commands. That just, that doesn't exist, right? It's like, yeah. I hear what you're saying, but the data says differently. It happened like 5,000 times a day. And they're like, wait, what? They're like, yeah, it looks like a business process. You guys actually do this. They're like, wow. So, you know, there are snowflake moments. And when you start looking at things at such large scale, you can write it and be like, this is perfect. And it'll blow up when you onboard a new customer or a new business process starts. You know, maybe it's a new build process. All of a sudden, these tools or techniques you were detecting on kind of fall apart and then you have to go through, you know, whitelisting processes or users or specific areas and be like, okay, this doesn't apply over there, but you know, you can usually tune it to get it to a certain point, but yeah, starting out broad can be, can be great, but it can also be noisy. Like you just onboard a new one and it all goes to hell. So you were predominantly focused on the logs you were getting from the CrowdStrike agent. Yeah. Yeah, so you, everything that, that CrowdStrike's agent yeah. delivered would be what we would use and leverage. Yeah. And by the way, your point earlier about how IR used to take a lot longer, fully agree with that. I used to have to dump memory from systems and analyze it and it would take a while depending on how big the memory was. And then, you know, sometimes it's fragmented and it's not complete. So I think when, I still remember when CrowdStrike came out, it was pretty interesting. And it was actually around the same time that I think OS Query was also becoming more popular. And it was just this idea of like extending what was built into systems. So I fully agree. It was definitely a massive, massive step function improvement on the ability to do incident response. The question I have in my head is, what other data sources were you using to do this analysis? Because I imagine that you can be informed from a lot of different other places. So what else were you doing to make the, yeah. the accuracy higher? So for, for Overwatch, a lot of it would be statistical, right? Starting off with a base and you could narrow it down from there. Cause like I said, if it happens 5,000 times in an environment, chances are not always, I will say, but chances are, you know, it's a false positive. If it happens five times, then, you know, that's something you could look at. May the unpopularized least frequency of occurrence also, right? And that still holds true today. It's something that they talked about and published. You could use it for almost any artifact when you wanted to narrow in, like as an organization, just be like, oh, what registry keys are we writing to and what software is doing it? You know, those are really simple things because if you start looking at the processes across an enterprise environment, if you're collecting that data and then go, oh, you know, this process is only on five machines. Well, that's weird. 
you know, one is there an approval for it. Yeah. Internal processes can take over there. You know, gee, Jim in engineering is running this really weird name thing that no one else has. Is there a ticket open for that? Did he get, you know, if they don't have administrative privileges, who approved the installation of the software? What else does it do? What is it accessing? What files is it writing? Tracing it back to its origin. Oh, gee, Jim downloaded it using Internet Explorer because that's where the file, right? You know, events are from. That was what the parent was like. Sure. Okay. So he downloaded it from the internet randomly. Then you can go back through and start looking at your other logs. I will say endpoint in general tended to me be an 80% solution, right? A lot of environments don't have, they're not going to collect DNS. It's too voluminous. They're not going to connect web logs. It's too much, right? So you'll get a little bit of all those, but with the relevancy. So as an analyst, when I was growing up, you know, I started off doing network forensics. That was the best that we had in the commercial world, right? Then SANS developed the, you know, the curriculum for being able to do disk forensics and kind of grow and learn how to do some registry forensics and work on that aspect, more traditional dead box stuff. And then memory came along. So it was like I had these pieces and tools. Every time I had network telemetry, I'd be like, hmm, well, I know that these things took place on that workstation or these, these commands were sent. I don't know what they did. You know, now I'd like, well, if I had a dead box investigation, I might be able to find out what processes or what files were written around that time. I may not have process information, but you know, so I'm piecing together multiple artifact constellations of information. Like, okay, I got to go do this and run these processes. That takes time. Then I got to go do this and that takes time. But you're just getting it all wrapped up in a nice little bow tied together with all the context. And that, that was really the key is the context, you know. Who did what, when, where, why, and how? As analysts, it's like we're playing the game of Clue sometimes. It's like, oh, Colonel Mustard in the library with a candlestick. I say that all the time. The five, you know, you, you ask the who, what, where, why, how. Like, that's so important. And a lot of what we do as analysts, it's kind of like going to court, right? You have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this thing happened. It's very gray. It's never black and white. And it's exactly what you said. It's like, oh, well, you know, this one employee was doing this one thing. Why were they doing that? And then you have to like trace back and tell the story sometimes without going to them because sometimes you can't go to them, especially if it's like insider threat. So super challenging. I'm really curious about how you scale this. You know, there's massive amounts of data that are being collected by CrowdStrike and others. And what was effective for making sure your analysts were being effective and, and really adjusting to that scale as the company grew really rapidly. Yeah, yeah. It, it all comes down to, you know, time scales, right? A great example of is the classic adversary technique of landing and expanding, right? They compromise one machine and they may hit 10 others in 20 minutes. And each one has a unique C2 and a unique piece of malware, a, you know, a unique persistence mechanism because they already have it all planned out and they're ready. They're running off of playbooks. Right. This isn't their first rodeo, but the person on the other end, the company receiving that gift may be their first time. And that's where having, you know, those sorts of operations, but it's always been how fast can I access the data or information? Right. Like we never measured and I still today don't like to measure queries in minutes. It has to be in seconds. That's when time counts, you know, because that land and expand. And if you're thinking about incidents and you can't keep track of all those moving pieces or go back and find them quickly, it's like, oh, go pull those 20 machines offline. That impacts the business. That impacts, you know, our ability to execute and remediate quickly. That impacts so much from a business perspective. You're like, oh, well, we are, we know what they did. 
not something I often recommend, but you'd be like, oh, we could roll it back. Like move the registry key, block the C2s and leave the machines online, right? That's a business decision that somebody has to accept the risk to do. But it always comes down to time scale. Like how quickly can I access the data and information I need to answer the questions I have to protect my organization? You know, so it was always like, and even today, it's a, you know, seconds kind of question. Okay, how many machines does this process exist on? You know, I need to know now, not in, I came from the days of ArcSight, right? Where to run a report was 20 minutes and it would often crash, you know, and we only had like four terabytes of data. That's where I cut my teeth in the sim world very, very early on. You know, today it's like, oh, we have petabytes of data. I can get an answer in three seconds. And that's searching all that data. That's important, especially at scale when you're in, especially if you are in active target, right? Organizations will, may not view it that way. And, you know, we'll pick and choose their tools based on financial capability and budget, but that scalability of those tools uh, kind of plays into maybe an unmeasurable expense. How much am I going to have to spend in response? Well, if you can contain it fast, maybe not nearly as much as if you have to go to Deadbox Forensics, you don't have that visibility, you don't have all the answers, you got to pull all those machines offline and you know, you're impacting the business that way. How much automation was there in that response? So we had custom systems and I still believe in a lot of, you know, the industry has figured out our tooling, you know, from a search perspective, I'll say. From that point on, depending on your workflows, I fully believe in the like sackless approaches it's been called, right? If a human does the same thing 10 times, it should be automated. It should be enriched. It should be done before you even hand it to somebody like, hey, what do you think about this thing here? Right? Pointing to an alert. That alert should have all the data and information. That may be relevant to it. ASNs, you know, maybe it's the VT information. Maybe it's a URL scan information, you know, like, oh, here's what that, you know, that phishing link looks like. And you're like, oh, that looks bad. That saves time and that creates efficiency. And that's, you know, not to make our analysts push button monkeys, but that gives them the opportunity to like, well, I'd always do these things. Each analyst may have a slightly different flavor. Like, oh, I don't use your scan. I use so-and-so. Oh, I don't like VT. I use, you know, passive, uh, passive total or, you know, they have their tools of preference. In the end, they're doing the same thing. They're enriching the information to make, have more context to make a better decision. The sooner they have that data and information, the faster they can do it. And just be like, click, 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 done. Or even automate the closure of a case by having, you know, this alert came in, it was enriched in this way, followed up with another search to go look up those IPs or those net ranges or that user and their activity. You know, there are playbooks that you can automate where you can really reduce or limit the amount of work that a, a human has to take the cognitive load to answer. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I love that phrase of if you do it 10 times manually, automate it, huge fan of that. Does that mean that your analysts were developers or like, you know, I use it in air quotes, right? It's like, like they knew it enough to be dangerous or uh, did you sort of split the team and have some developers that were actual software engineers sort of complement the analysts who were hardcore yeah. security people could oh, look at logs and be like, yes, that's like your breach. That's an awesome question. So in the beginning, it was very, very small. Like people to this day, I assume if all held true, it's still is smaller than most people would ever could ever imagine because of the ability to one, maximize and utilize the tooling to its, to its fullest. When we started off it, it was actually a couple of people doing, who are good at development and developed like custom tools. Cause of course, in those kinds of environments and in any environment, right? 
you may have bespoke customization, like, you know, a business tool internally, you know, that you only know the APIs for. And so you're going to use that to do user lookups or something random. So we had to build our own tooling. So we had some developers who were cyber savvy, I'll say. They weren't historical, traditional, like full on, I'm just a software dev. We brought on some of those later on as our tooling and our reliance on said tooling grew and grew and grew because it started to be used internally a lot more by not just my team, but by other teams. And then, you know, we had analysts, I had a research cell and we had a developer cell. So we kind of then, as most organizations will do, they start off small and you have a bunch of, you know, jack of all trades. So I can write some simple Python code that's really scrappy to get this thing done so I don't have to do it 10 times. Like it happens, I push some buttons. And as a result of that, in that effort and work, like I had analysts who actually own patents on some of the work that the Overwatch team did because they contributed significantly to the way we work, the thought processes behind things, which is pretty awesome to say like, oh, I was a cybersecurity analyst and I have a patent. Like, what? That's awesome. So yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of really great things as time went on. It's always really interesting to combine various backgrounds of people as well, and especially in security and especially at scale. You have to learn, in my opinion, three concentrations of knowledge. There's security, obviously, baseline, understanding how attacks work, the kill chain, some of the things you mentioned, like, okay, attackers, when they come in, they're going for persistence, like how they think and behave. So there's that. And then there's some form of development, right? Like various waves of it. It could be simple bash scripting, whatever, Python scripting, or it could be actual development. And then... I think the third one is kind of like a, I'd put it under an umbrella of like systems administration slash DevOps in understanding like how systems work and how to manage a lot of systems. Because one, you need to know how systems work to do forensics because you're looking effectively at a timeline of events. You're like, okay, well, this is normal. And you, you're sort of like, you're kind of being the machine learning model. You're like, that looks weird. That's abnormal. That's abnormal because I know how my thing works. And then when it comes to deployment at scale, it's, can I take this agent and deploy it to 100,000 machines? And it's a very different mindset from being a developer, which is a very different mindset from being a security analyst. So when you put people in this multifunctional, like cross-functional group, I think all of those things sort of, they complement each other and people learn from, you know, the other side of the table, like, okay, this is how I need to be thinking about security. This is how I need to think about DevOps. Like, it's a really cool dynamic. And like, I've seen that play out a few times where I learned a lot from, from sitting with certain teams and, and having cross-functional teams. So I love that approach. I think it's super effective. Oh, absolutely. And I'm a strong believer, you know, it doesn't apply to everybody. Like I couldn't script my way out of a paper bag, but I think as you grow as an analyst, you kind of need to start being able to rely on some of those skills, like learning a little bit of Python or something, because you can automate yourself out of a job or you make your job that much more enjoyable because you free up time with repetitive tasks to go do more cool exploratory work to in, you know, go into if your environment doesn't support it or doesn't have a dedicated team to do more threat hunting, to spend more time with the data, thinking outside of the box, not being driven by the, the day-to-day kind of overrun of information and kind of things that you need to do. And two, to the other point that you made, we would have our development team in bed with our analysts to see exactly how they use the tools and to get there. Like, like, you're doing what? Why would you like do this, this, and this? That doesn't make sense. Like, I can make that really easy for you. 
And then they would get excited because they were developing products for a team where they could see the value and the benefits like and improve it and enrich it and also get a little bit of insight into like how they would work. Because while no two analysts work the same, for the most part, you know, they all kind of followed a similar path at some point in time. And that was very beneficial to have a tight coupling to our development team and our research team where, you know, they would all kind of talk together and work on projects across those lines occasionally, which made it a lot better for everybody and just continue to grow. Yeah, I can vouch. I mean, that's effectively how I learned. I started as an analyst and then there was uh, this one guy that I hope he joins the podcast one day. I think he's super smart and he's done incredible work, like super high scale networking and really, really good security. And I would just sit at his desk and he would just like explain how his like Nessus scanners were set up and how like he had set up like Bro and Suricata. It was called Bro at the time. It's called Zeke now, obviously. Yeah. Um, and those experiences are so, so valuable for security people because the next thing I want to ask you is like, what are good resources and, and good communities that you think people can hang out in to really like get some of this diverse school of thought? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, having worked in many different enterprises, some of them have the old gray beard in the corner, like who just has been there for 20 years and knows everything and has touched everything. And, you know, people kind of leave him alone. He might be a little grumpy or grouchy at times too, but all your systems may be unique. And that was the, one of the things, you know, that I think analysts, you know, come to realize after, you know, it's like, oh, they go through school or maybe they're going through a boot camp and learning about, you know, very specific SOC things or cybersecurity things. Then you get dropped into an environment and you're like, wow, they didn't tell us about AS400s. Like, you guys still run that? What does that look like? You know, you'll learn your environment around you. And that's almost as important as knowing about phishing and EDR programs and tools because your snowflake of an environment, that's typically where your crown jewels are stored, right? If you start thinking about businesses and organizations, been around 30 or 40 years, you know, not the 10, 15, 20 year tech companies, right? They probably have bespoke systems. But like those more traditional environments, they have systems that contain data and information. Maybe it's a warehousing program. Maybe it's a, you know, a research, academic research category tool, or, you know, it's something specific to that business that only they have that they probably wrote from scratch internally that has a lot of very sensitive, valuable information. And nine times out of 10, nobody's paying attention to them. It was written by somebody 30 years ago and hasn't been touched, or there's only two people that support it. So you're going to need to develop those relationships internally with other teams. And also, quite frankly, some of that internal work is the first time you want to talk to somebody as a security analyst or as a security leader, you don't want to be when there's an incident and be like, hey, Jim, yeah, you know those systems you got running out on the internet? We got to talk about those because we're shutting them down. Like those aren't the times you want to build those relationships. So internally is always great because you need to learn your environment. It's kind of knowing what you're in charge of and what you're protecting, because then you can start to think more like, hey, okay, we process financial transactions. How do we do that? What is here? You know, oh, we process payments. Where do they go? How does that workflow look like? What are our exposures? Whatever that is. As far as a community, when you're an analyst, sometimes going to training or doing networking helps. And honestly, I was horrible at that early on in my career. And when I started to do it was when I got into defense because there were information sharing groups. Those were really good. I built relationships there that I still maintain today. And now I have this network of people who are all over the place in terms of industry, capability, 
you know, and if I have a funky, weird question, you know, I can go through my Rolodex. I can just be like, Hey, uh, you know, Sean, I know you're the Russian adversary guy. Like I haven't had to deal with him in a while. I'm dealing with something kind of funny, you know, or have you seen this or have you heard this? And you'll develop that nice little network where sometimes it'll be like a wink and a nod, like, yep, haven't seen that one yet, you know, because you can't share that information because it's, you know, sensitive to your organization, but you can at least put your feelers out or be like, what is working for you to detect things in your environment at scale? You know, what are you using for phishing? You know, man, we're having a lot of trouble with X, Y, and Z tool. Have you run into this before? You know, because sometimes those decisions don't come easily. So as an upcoming analyst, definitely trying to go to B-sides are great. You know, there's a couple of really good ones. SANS training is very expensive. And if you're entering the industry, it can be difficult, but it also can be extraordinarily beneficial. Even if you just go to some of their conferences, they're really good. I like to look at a lot of tools and things that are developed. Like I came across the tool that you had worked on before it became Panther. Like, and I read about it. I was like, oh, that's pretty awesome, you know, and doing research. And I follow a lot of people on Twitter because you just learned so much there. It can be an engaging community at times, but if anything, it gives you points and places and time to go look at things as an analyst and ask questions and be like, huh, you know, so-and-so was talking about this QuakeBot thing. Have we seen that? What would that even look like in my environment, you know? And sometimes you might be able to reach out to that researcher or, you know, support like that to kind of start growing your network and figuring out things on your own. Because at heart, a lot of us really dig what we do and want to be able to talk about it and share what we can when we can. Which is tricky given the sensitivity of our work. Exactly. Exactly. So it may just be like, you know, a wink and a nod, like, yeah, you should really go look for this IP address. I don't know why, but <laughs> it's kind of important. <laughs> Yeah, here's a list of 10 IPs that we may or may not have seen do certain things. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. That's always been a challenge, though, to be honest. Just having a good like community of sharing, it's very difficult to come across, at least in my experience. Like Some people are very stingy about sharing anything and like don't want to talk at all. And then there's other people who are more willing. And there's like the ISAC groups, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a handful of those I've been a part of as well. And like, super, super valuable. So yeah, it's important to find the community for sure. It can be tough. Um, you know, honestly, on sharing, I've had trouble sharing internally, even, especially within threat intelligence, those groups and working groups, and even, you know, within my own business units, sometimes it's very, if they come from a more traditional government background, it's very like need to know. And that's just what's been beaten in their head. And you'd be like, Hey, I found this thing. What do you think? What do you know? It's like, they take it and they run away. You're like, no, no, no. I wanted to have an exchange. You'd be like, nope, sorry. Thanks. Bye. And they take your data. (laughs) Well, it's interesting you brought up StreamAlert, my prior project, because that was actually a good example of something we shared very early. So there was a few sort of like closed door groups we were part of in Silicon Valley and Mm -hmm. just like other Silicon Valley tech companies. And we presented that work to that group fairly early. And we heard similar presentations too. Like before eBPF was big, like people were talking about it there and then nice. Dream Alert and things like that. So it was it was a really useful group. And I remember there was like a really cool presentation someone gave about like their honeypot that they had built and they made it seem like they got popped really bad. And they were like, actually, the attacker was in the honeypot. It was so funny. <laughs> and then they were like, this is the thing we built. It's super cool. Oh, That's pretty cool. We should build one. You know, and it, going back to what we were saying before, like the people you surround yourself with really helps inspire your own skill sets, but also your own way of thinking. 
And that ultimately makes us all better. You know, if you're willing to change, of course, you have to be willing to change. Oh, absolutely. But that's been something that's been really interesting with security, especially just given how how gray it is, right? It's like there's no there's no right or wrong. You know, there's your approach and then there's my approach and they might both be right. They might both be wrong too. You know, you never know. So it's interesting. But I've really enjoyed this conversation, Chris. It's been great chatting with you. I feel like I could just have this conversation for the next hour, but obviously <laughs> we, we both have our jobs to go back to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you have such a wealth of knowledge and experience and I, I appreciate you taking the time. I want to get one more question in, which is what three pieces of advice do you have for, for people building or aspiring to build like highly performing detection response teams? Oh, yeah. So we, we actually touched on a little bit of that one. You're going to need some when you're building those organizations, it's great to have, you know, jack of all trades people because they'll probably want to specialize at some point, but it helps just, you know, the detection response space is like multiple specific domains all thrown under one umbrella, right? Oh, it's incident response. Oh, it's detection engineering. Oh, it's security operations. Oh, it's threat intelligence. Like there's a lot that you can put in there. And as you mature as an analyst or an individual in our space, you'll touch on a lot of those at some point in time, right? So having those people who know a little bit about a lot of different of those areas can at least start getting you started. Then they can feed the machine, you know, similar to then start building out or specializing, bringing in others to fill the gaps or to grow other parts of it as the business suffers in certain areas, right? Maybe it's like, oh, we need more analysts because we have really good detections and apparently we're very well targeted. So, you know, the business can continue to grow and add there. That's one thing I always say like, and this is more from a, don't chase the new shiny, like our industry is great with buzzwords and changing terms and like focus on your foundations and basics. That's a big one. And a lot of organizations fail at that. And it can be because you have to manage upwards, right? Your leadership is reading in the news about this new thing that's happened or this new technology. Hey, do we have that? And, you know, maybe they're getting pushed to be, you know, you should buy this thing, right? We need this tool. You know, my buddy's running it over at so-and-so organization. Those kinds of conversations can happen. And so you know, focusing on the foundations and not getting distracted easily because honestly, the foundation that you lay is what you'll stand on. And if it's weak and shaky, like you'll continue to drop the ball, you'll continue to have incidents, you'll continue to have, you know, operational issues or problems. And so making sure that you start well and strong first is like way important. That could be mean many different things. And maybe having just the right couple of tools, making sure all your data is parsed properly, like it means a lot of different things to different organizations, depending on where you start. And the other thing that I think we tend to over index on or overdo is we want to capture all the telemetry and all the data and information. And I say, if you can't search it, don't store it. And most organizations are like, oh, we have to keep this for three years, but we have no way to search it past, you know, 90 days or something like that. And they don't think about the implications there and how to do it operationally. And that's a problem. And I mean, it's a good problem to have that you can store data. But if you can't search it, why are you holding on to it, right? Or if it's too big of, a, big of an ask, that's probably the big one. Really great pieces of advice. Very inspiring pieces of advice as well. So I appreciate that. Chris, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you on the show. And uh, good luck with everything. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website, runpanther.io to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. 
Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks. See you again next time.